Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Global News had a poll a few days ago. It showed the Conservative Party of Canada, led by Kevin O'Leary, has a good chance of defeating Justin O'Trudeau. Justin O'Trudeau, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. O'Leary trailed Justin Trudeau by just one percentage point, 37 to 38 nationally. But Mr. O'Leary has been heavily criticized, including by uh, federal Conservative Party leadership candidates, for releasing a video of himself at a gun range firing an automatic weapon and pistol on the day of the burial of three of the victims of the Saint-Foy mosque killings. Aaron O'Toole is one of the Conservative Party of Canada leadership candidates. He's a former minister of Veterans Affairs, and um, we spoke with him last weekend, and uh, Mr. O'Toole joins us now on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. O'Toole, good to talk to you again. It's good to be back, Roy. I didn't think it'd be this quick. Uh, Anytime you call, I'll try my best to be there. Well, you're a good guy. Um, (laughs) Thank you. People want to know what political aspirants would do for them. Now, Mr. O'Leary has been in the news since, of course, that video was released on Monday, and But the day before the mosque shooting, you expressed concerns about what Kevin O'Leary represented for legal gun owners in Canada, and I wonder if that was a response to what you said. That's what some people believe. Uh, clearly, you know, it was, it, what he did was several days later, but by the time he did it, it was literally hour or minutes before funerals were beginning, um, you know, from a horrific event that uh, that impacted many. But Mr. O'Leary, I think, was in the United States that day, so obviously with somebody on his team. Uh, what I've been saying all along, Roy, is Mr. O'Leary's not a conservative. He, he's certainly a celebrity, but if you actually check his donation history, his statements on everything from supporting a carbon tax to being anti-defense and not supporting the military uh, through to firearms ownership, his positions are classic Liberal Party of Canada positions. So I want to make sure... Our members know that. I've said anyone is welcome in this race, but be prepared to be challenged for your ideas, positions, or if you're out of step with our members. Of course, you have the debate tonight in Halifax, so we'll find out more of uh, what the position is of you and and other Conservative Party leadership candidates toward the issues that matter, and I'm sure Mr. O'Leary will be coming in for his share of uh, challenges, being uh, that this is his first um, debate. Now, you also spoke about the fact that that video was released on the day of the funerals in Montreal. And that was something that was difficult for many people to swallow, that that uh, that, that video appeared. And they, they pulled it back, pulled it down. But, but there it was, and you made the point, if I understand correctly, if I understand you correctly, part of this is from your perspective because Mr. O'Leary lives outside Canada, and so he doesn't have a feel for what's being said and, and what's going on in, inside the country. Exactly. You know, the mood of the country this past week has been mourning, deep, deep uh, reflection and reaching out to to condemn hate, condemn intolerance, that sort of thing. I wrote a very public article and blog on the subject this week because people were moved by it. And, you know, to put out what he did at that time sort of shows that when you're not in the country, you don't appreciate the mood, the sentiment and the dialogue going on in Canada. And, you know, I think Canadians can go anywhere in the world and be entertainers or be academics or be researchers. You know, I support that. 
But if you're running to be prime minister of Canada or lead one of our parties, you should at least commit to Canada. And I think with, with Mr. O'Leary, he's in the East Coast with us here today, but the East Coast for him typically means Boston, not Halifax. And I think, I think at a very minimum, you have to be willing to run for a seat, become an MP, and then, and then seek the leadership of your party. But he'll, he'll, uh, he'll put his own ideas out there tonight, I guess. What are the issues that matter most, do you think? That, uh, and I don't want to make this about Kevin O'Leary because you're on the air with us, but what are the issues that matter most? And why does Mr. O'Leary not get it? You know, looking at that Global News poll, he's only one percentage point behind Justin Trudeau, and they're looking ahead on that polling to what might happen in 2019. What doesn't he understand, and what does Aaron O'Toole do that Canadians, the number one issue that Canadians need? And don't tell me jobs, please, unless you're going to tell me how you'll get the jobs. Well, listen, we all know that polls have been sort of suspect in recent years. We, you know, we wouldn't have a Premier Notley if people believe the polls. And, and uh, certainly I think the poll is a reflection of the fact that Mr. O'Leary is a celebrity. He is well-known. He's a dragon, a shark, all these sorts of things. He, he's colorful for his put-downs of people in, in the business context. So... Is he on television? Is he having, you know, get, enjoying that celebrity recognition? Yes. Do people in the Conservative Party, who are actually going to make the decision on who leads them, know that most of his statements on policy have been liberal? That's what he's going to have to overcome. And, and right now, right now, it's about satisfying the members of the Conservative Party, not exactly. satisfying the public in a general election. Though, you know, those polls are meaningless, as are the fact that he has all these likes and Facebook but, but tell me this, tell me this, Mr. O'Toole, is it going to be for the members of the Conservative Party, and I understand people have joined the party who have really nothing to do and nothing in common with the Conservative Party, but they've joined in order to vote against Kevin O'Leary. Um, is there going to be a, a visceral sense among Conservatives that we'd better, elect, we'd better elect somebody as our leader who can become Prime Minister, who has the name recognition? Clearly that's what the Liberals did with Justin Trudeau. They didn't, they didn't elect Justin Trudeau, the leader of the Liberal Party, based on his accomplishments. Uh, absolutely not. But do we, do we counter the Liberal Party celebrity with a reality celebrity of our own? I don't know. I think that's a disaster. You know, I think Mr. O'Leary could actually be far worse than Mr. Trudeau, including on the economy. He supported a carbon tax until now. I worry about people that he, he can't change costumes like a television program in between scenes. Yeah. Your positions on philosophical conservative issues in terms of smaller government, low taxes, you know, support for law-abiding firearms owners, support for the military, strong foreign policy, you know, Mr. O'Leary's statements on peacekeeping and the historic honest broker mumbo-jumbo that the liberals use are quintessentially liberal. So if he's going to change those positions now, he will then be an absolute phony. I would rather conservatives say, let's not pick a celebrity, let's pick someone that's competent, that will get our economy back on track, that can speak to military issues having served. Like I said, I'm a year younger than Justin Trudeau, but having served in the military, worked on Bay Street, been a charitably-minded person, I think we can build the best of the economic strengths that conservatives have with a bit less of the edge. Mr. O'Leary is more edge, and we will lose the next election. Well, I've got to tell you something. I like what I hear you say. Good. And I, do, I do. I do. I tweeted that last weekend, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not known for kissing up to political uh, aspirants, but I like what you. I like what you stand for, and I like what you say. But I wanted to talk to you about about Kevin O'Leary and this particular uh, the video and, and what he stands for and where he stands with the with the uh, Conservative Party. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for the time. Good to talk to you again. Good luck with the uh, with the debate tonight. I'll be, I know I'm going to be watching that. 
Well, I'm standing in my hotel room looking across the harbor of Halifax at the old base I flew out of when I was in the Air Force. So it's lovely being in Halifax, Roy, and I look forward to being back with you in a week or so. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Aaron O'Toole, former captain in the Air Force and former Veterans Affairs Minister. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Mitchell Murphy is a paraplegic whose insurance company refuses to pay what the policy requires in the event of paraplegia. I read the story in the National Post the other day, and uh, I happen to know his lawyer, Savant Tamarkin, and um, of uh, Samfiro Tamarkin LLP in Toronto. And Sivan, this is a, I read the story, and I'm not laughing. I, I was so frustrated reading the story of your client, what he's going through, and to be such an optimistic and, and positive individual, and it's the optimism and the positive nature that has made the insurance company feel like they can turn on him. Share, good to have you on the show, and share, share his story with us, please. Well, thanks, Roy. It's great to be uh, on with you. So you're completely right, and, and to be honest with you, when I was first contacted by Mitch and his mother, Colleen, uh, and heard the story, I was absolutely shocked. I thought I'd heard everything uh, when it comes to insurance companies. And so here's what we're, we're dealing with. Uh, Mitch is a 28-year-old young man, and back uh, in June of uh, 2011, he had an unfortunate accident uh, in a restaurant. He fell over a railing. Uh, about seven meters, and he suffered a traumatic brain injury and a spinal cord injury. Uh, This happened in Ohio. He was in the States at that time. He's originally from Nova Scotia. Since that time, since 2011, he's been trying to get uh, the policies that uh, he had, that he was insured through his mom's work. Uh, He tried to to get uh, the the benefits, and and the benefit that we're dealing with here is $120,000. We're not talking about a million dollars or five million. It's $120,000 that under the policy is payable to Mitch in the event that he suffers paraplegia and he's paralyzed from the waist down. And since 2011, Mitch and his mother have applied several times. They've been denied three times uh, by the insurance company this $120,000, which they needed in order to put that towards treatments and rehab and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I've reviewed the denial letters from the insurance companies, when they had retained me a few months back, I was looking in the denial letters to figure out how is the insurance company, uh, how did they arrive at their decision that, in their view, he doesn't meet the definition of a paraplegic. And I was trying to see whether or not, you know, perhaps they had their doctors review the documents, perhaps they had Mitch reviewed uh, or assessed by one of their doctors, and a different conclusion was arrived at. And I saw nothing in the denial letters where they pointed to their own medical uh, doctors it's almost as though the adjuster that was adjudicating the file was receiving all these medical documents from mitch and from his doctors and i happened to see specific letters from mitch's specialist to the adjuster uh, outlining mitch's condition and the fact that it's permanent and the fact that he is paralyzed from the waist down and one after another the denial letters simply say no you just don't meet the definition of paraplegia in our view you don't have functional loss of use of your legs when, in fact, he does. Well, clearly. I looked at the photographs, I read the article. He clearly is paraplegic, but he's he's optimistic. He's someone who's not going to give up. He has hope that he will walk again, and and great for him. But now the insurance company is using that against him, right? 
Yes, uh, they are. And you're right. He's a very optimistic young man. I mean, if you speak with him, you think nothing's wrong with him. He's very determined. In fact, he tried to live on his own with a friend uh, just, just a short while back, and he wasn't successful. I mean, he's wheelchair-bound right. at home and outside. Now, what's happening here is that uh, he was part of, uh, of, of a very interesting uh, rehab program in San Diego where they basically suited him up in some kind of an exoskeleton. It's almost like a Robocop suit, in a way. Right. And so in a rehab setting, he was, amb- he, he, he was able to ambulate. He's not actually able to walk. In fact, he has no sensation in his legs. Occasionally, he feels, that he feels a twitch in, in, in one of his legs. Uh, but other than that, he really has no sensation. If you look at the photographs, his legs are like toothpicks. There's atrophy. Right. But because in a rehab setting, he's working with his rehab specialist and he tries to get better, and of course, it is permanent, but because in a rehab setting, it looks as though he's somewhat ambulating, the insurance company is simply saying, no, you're just not paralyzed enough. You know, Under the uh, policy, you just don't meet the definition. You know, Sivana, one thought I had was uh, as I was thinking about talking to you, there's an impact, stories like this, of your client, Mitchell, on the disabled in this country. I mean, it's going to have an impact on every disabled person. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, 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 it has that. And, I mean, you know, it's a red flag for us because when you have these insurance policies out there, right. you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be covered or my family is going to be covered. Yeah. If, if this kid is not covered when it's so clear, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, back pain, uh, that you can't see on an MRI because, you know, it's just muscular. You're talking about a diagnosable permanent impairment. He is paralyzed for life. So where does it stand? You're absolutely right. I mean, this has an impact on, on every disabled person out there. Yeah. Uh, where does it all stand now? I mean, what happens? Well, so we started a claim. We have the defense from the other side. The defense really doesn't share anything that we, we haven't known before. Uh, and, and I can tell you right now, the insurance company is engaging us in uh, settlement discussions. I was also contacted, interestingly, by um, a, a very good uh, insurance lawyer here in the province who had just happened to be down south right now, uh, literally today, actually. And he says that a few years back, he had a very, very similar case. And they actually went to trial. And, a tra- and, and again, very similar where the insurance company said, you know, the person doesn't meet the definition. They're not paralyzed. Right. And his client, again, was paralyzed from the waist down. They went to trial. The judge hammered the insurance company. They paid the full claim, and they paid all the legal costs. So this yeah. is this is not without precedent. I can see that. Well, it's a it's a it's a disturbing story, and I, I know that uh, your client has great representation because I know you feel very strongly, even personally, about these issues. Sivan, thank you so much for uh, for sharing the time with us, uh, Mitchell Murphy. Check out his story, everybody. Thanks, Sivan. All the best. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The the lead story today is that a Seattle federal judge issued a nationwide temporary restraining order on President Trump's travel ban from seven Muslim-majority countries. The White House is immediately appealing the order, but in the meantime, U.S. Customs and Border Protection have begun to honor all visas invalidated by the ban, and uh, President Trump tweeted something about that so-called judge. Back with us on the program to speak about this, and we really appreciate him taking the time, is Stephen Legomsky. He was the chief counsel at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services during the Obama administration, and uh, Mr. Legomsky is also professor of law in St. Louis. 
Professor, thank you very much for the time. Uh, you told us last weekend that your view at the time was that Donald Trump was constitutionally within, within his rights to declare that executive action on the travel ban. Where does this all now fit with the with the Seattle judge? And I guess my, my part B of the question is, a Seattle judge, Washington state is known as a very liberal place. Was he maybe, even though he was appointed by George W. Bush, was he maybe a more liberal-leaning judge? Would a different judge in the same area, jurisdiction, maybe have given a, a different verdict? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me back. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Um, I, just to clarify, uh, I, I, I've never been certain whether the court would come out the way it did on the constitutional issues. Um, I feel pretty certain that the president has the authority to decide how many refugees to admit each year and generally from where. But the big issue presented here is whether the president has acted on the basis of religious discrimination, and if so, whether that's legally permissible. So I, I think that is a tough question. And to your point, um, we just don't know how another judge would have come out. It is true that judges vary on this, although so far uh, every district judge but one has come out uh, in a way pretty similar to what this judge ruled. There have been four, right? Uh, pardon me? There have been four judges in, in, in total? Uh, I think more than that. No, I, I want to say there have been about seven or eight. Really? There were four originally, and then there have been a couple of others since then. Yeah. Professor Legomsky, where, where do you see there is a breakdown in this executive action that President Trump undertook? Where, where are the flaws immediately visible, and, and how would you interpret why this judge in Seattle decided the way he did? It, it's very tricky. I, I guess I should first explain that there are actually two different kinds of bans that the judge struck down in this case. One relates specifically to overseas refugees. That's a 120-day moratorium on all refugee admissions from everywhere in the world, subject to a couple of important exceptions that we can come back to if you'd like, um, and also an indefinite ban on Syrian refugees. That's the refugee side of it. Right. The second ban that was announced, though, uh, is both narrower and broader. It's narrower in the sense that it applies only to people who are from any of seven particular countries, all of which are Muslim majority, um, but it's broader in the sense that for those individuals it applies not just to refugees, but to anybody coming in from those countries, students, tourists, business visitors, and until very recently, uh, lawful permanent residents, green card holders, although the government has now changed its uh, policy on that and green card holders will be exempted from the ban. My own personal view is that um, the objections that the plaintiffs were making, based mainly on um, assertions of religious discrimination, uh, will probably be easier to sustain in the context of the ban on the seven countries than they will on the general refugee ban. I think that's going to be um, a tougher one to make stick. But then we'll have to wait and see on that. Was the main complaint from a college in the state of Washington that certain students and staff were unable to return? Uh, yeah, that was a big part of it. There was also a good deal of um, resistance from business leaders, um, who, uh, particularly in the state of Washington, uh, where some of the high-tech companies are located, uh, because those people are constantly traveling back and forth from one country to another. So there was pushback from them as well. Um, there was a vague suggestion in the opinion, I don't quite understand it, um, that Washington, the state of Washington would also lose uh, much of its funding and tax revenue from this, but there was no elaboration on why that would happen. If you were working for this president, how would you advise him to react? Well, that's a hard question for me to answer. Uh, I, I think my advice to him at the beginning would have been, don't do this. 
um, the, the national security benefits are minimal, if any. There are actually some national security costs to doing this, and the human um, toll that it takes on desperate refugees is really great. Now that we are where we are, I suppose that if I were advising the president, I would perhaps suggest that he now has an easy way out, that he should just let the court decision stand and explain to the voters that he tried to do this, but that the courts wouldn't let him. That might be a way to save face. Right, but he's obviously not going to do that. I've heard heard that this may very well be fast-tracked to the U.S. Supreme Court, because you can't have each decision, each executive action by Donald Trump being sidetracked to a, to a court somewhere, and the Democrats and their voters can't refight the election this way because Americans will become seriously irritated. No, no I think that's right. The polling shows that the public is overwhelmingly opposed uh, to, this, uh, to, to what has been deemed the Muslim ban. Uh, but nonetheless, it is true that at least a, I think we discussed this last time, uh, maybe not a majority, um, actually not even a plurality, but a good chunk of the American electorate did vote for Donald Trump. And to be fair to Trump, he's doing what he said he would do during the campaign. So he's being faithful to his campaign promises. Right. Um, but I think I agree with you that there's a good chance it could be fast-tracked, mainly because the interests on both sides are really pretty immediate. Uh, the needs of the refugees, of course, are very immediate, but at the same time, national security needs are also uh, very urgent. They're the kinds of things that can't be put off for too long. And uh, we, in addition to getting to the Supreme Court, I should mention that we really don't know at this point how long even this temporary stay will be in effect. Uh, the judge is supposed to hold a hearing, uh, most likely, I'm guessing, early, next, early this coming week to decide whether to extend the stay. And in addition to that, the government will most likely appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is the circuit that covers most of the western United States, most of the west coast, I should say, of the U.S. And that court could easily dissolve the stay or dissolve part of it. So um, one of the things that I think people who hold these visas, who hold valid visas now, but who are overseas need to think about is getting to the U.S. very fast. Yeah. It could disappear without any notice. How quickly might that uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal um, respond and, and issue a judgment? Uh, they could conceivably respond within hours of the motion. Oh, really? Um, they'll be ready for it now. I, I don't think that will happen, but it wouldn't shock me at all if they responded within a day or two. Um, maybe I should maybe I should qualify that. I think that if the court were inclined to reverse the motion, it might respond fairly quickly. Um, but if the court is inclined toward affirming the motion. If it, think, if it thinks that's what it's likely to do, then there probably wouldn't be much harm in the, ju- in the court taking its time to decide because the stay will remain in effect until they say otherwise. Possible intervention by the Supreme Court of the United States notwithstanding. Should we prepare ourselves for more of the same, uh, at least in the short term, maybe in the next, I don't know, 12 months or possibly longer? Um, by that, do you mean on other executive actions? Or on well, more executive actions, more protests, more, 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 t- more, more court challenges by various attorneys general of, uh, of different states. Yeah, I think we probably will. Uh, this was what um, the Republicans did to President Obama when he was in office. They went out and found friendly uh, uh, judicial forums because if it's a nationwide policy, uh, one of the advantages of the person challenging it is that they can pick their forum. In the case of President Obama's executive actions on immigration, uh, they did that and they found uh, an extreme anti-immigrant uh, judge and uh, ended up stalling the program. Uh, now the shoe is on the other foot, of course. Um, there were similar actions, by the way, uh, to shut down a federal government policy that granted equal rights to transgender students 
Uh, there was another one in the labor law area. So I'm guessing that um, Democrats and progressives will use a similar strategy in trying to get the courts to shut down some of the more radical policies. Well, uh, I guess more of the same. More of the same. Professor Lugomsky, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, two weekends in a row. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Have a great day. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let me begin, though, with the story of Salvador Boda. I heard about Salvador from one of his co-workers in Calgary. Send me an email. Jeff sent me an email saying he's a great guy. Love working with him. Hardworking. Great family. Loves Canada. Pays taxes. And the Immigration Refugee Board has decided that um, Salvador Boda and his family have to leave this country, that they don't meet the uh, requirements to enter the country. I just want to read you something from the IRB report, and then we'll talk to Salvador. You'll hear his story. The presumption before this panel is that the claimant's testimony is true. The adult claimant's testimonies were spontaneous, detailed, and consistent with their previous statements. They appear to be genuine in their claims, and considering the testimony at the hearing, I do find they are credible witnesses. All right? So the IRB believes that Salvador Boda and his wife are telling the truth, but they're still getting kicked out of the country. Salvador, thank you for coming on the program. It's good to talk to you. Hello, Salvador. Hello? Salvador, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, uh, not too loud, but um, yes. I don't know if you guys can um, hide a little bit the volume, because I'm very... I, I better, um, can hear you guys. Okay, good. Tell us what happened to you in Costa Rica that made you come to Canada. What What's the story? What happened that made you leave the country? Share the story with us. Okay, basically, basically, uh, me and my family were a target, but a leader of the drug and money laundering cartel. We simply by refused to make out a lawful and fraudulent business with him. He started. He started to chasing us. He started to, to, to send us uh, text messages to our phones. I don't know how this guy found our telephone numbers, and he started to send us uh, text uh, messages, uh, telling us that we have to pay the money, because uh, it was simple. Uh, he, he tried to put my wife, uh, my majority wife, in a, in a fraudulent business. Uh, bringing uh, uh, fake uh, Rolex and uh, Cartier watches from China through Panama to Costa Rica, and uh, my wife denied because she said, "No, uh, I only sell uh, legal and um, you know legal watches." Yeah, so you guys, you guys had a you guys had a, ju- had a jewelry store, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I have a restaurant. My wife have a jewelry. Okay, so now this guy comes to you, and he yeah. says, as I understand it, he comes to you and he says. Um, I want you to take this money that I yep. that I'm going to give you. You put it into your bank account, and then you pay me back in uh, money from the restaurant and the jewelry store. So he's laundering money, and you guys get to keep twenty or thirty percent of it for yourself. Yep. So he wants to involve you in a criminal enterprise, and you and your wife yep. both said, "No, we're not doing that." Exactly. Yes. This guy wants to pay us. Uh, always uh, in cash uh, money 
Right. And you say, okay, and you're going to give me at the end of the month, you're going to give me a return in the check, uh, the 70% of that money. Right. So, guys, you're going to be rich in, in short time. So what happened yeah. when, you, when you said no, he found out, obviously found out where you lived. What happened with the, tell us what happened with the, the firebombing and then tell us what happened at your house. Oh, yeah, we have uh, this guy in the middle of the night. We were sleeping uh, at home, and we already received too many uh, text messages from the, to our phones telling that we have to pay the money and blah, 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 blah. And someday, yeah, we, we, we hear a, a noise in the front of the home, and some guys chat, yell, Cindy, which is my, my wife's name, Cindy, you have to pay me money or you're going to die or you have to get out of the country. And then uh, this fire starts in the front of the home. Uh, the, the, our home, we're so fire in fire. So we called the police at 911 in, back there in Costa Rica, the 911 and the police, the police and the fire department. They get the home and extinguish, extinguish the fire. And in that moment, this the police and the, and the, and the fire department uh, took the report and facts and collect evidence of every damage to our property. Right. Yes. So then, did, was there not also a drive-by shooting? Yeah. Uh, the night after that, uh, seems that the police never took the us in, in uh, you know, in count. Never, never, the police never hear us, our case, always deny, no, no, no it's, it's normal, normal, normal guys doing something, you know, this is not with you, not with you, not with you. Right. Uh, yeah, we, we run away from, from the capital, San Jose, Costa Rica, to, uh, to my uh, father-in-law home, which is uh, about 200 kilometers from San Jose, Costa Rica, right. in the middle of the night, and this guy chasing us. So uh, when we were there at uh, my father-in-law home, uh, we, uh, my, my father-in-law and we felt some noise at the, outside the home, right. and there were three bikes and around five, six guys with automatic guns, and they started shooting us uh, again at uh, the home and selling again, say it again, Cindy, Cindy, uh, Salvador, get out of the country or you're going to kill you, uh, you know. Something like that. Let me read. Let me read. Let me read something from the Immigration Review Board's report. This is what they wrote: The following is a brief synopsis of the allegations of the claimants put forth on the basis of claim BOC form and the subsequent narrative submitted to those forms. The principal claim. Remember now, they said that they. I read it earlier. They believed what Salvador and his wife said. So, the principal claimant has submitted that as a result of her failing to agree to illicit business dealings with a previous supplier of hers, she and her family have been targeted by this individual. The agent of harm, Daniel Montoya, had threatened the claimant with physical harm, including death. Unknown persons have texted threats to her about her and her family. Unknown persons have followed the claimant's minor son to and from school. An improvised explosive device, Molotov cocktail, was thrown at the claimant's home. Subsequently, they left for the principal claimant's father's home. The claimants believed that a family member was followed and persons on motorcycles had gone there and shots were fired. Subsequently, they left for Canada. The claimants fear that they will face serious harm, kidnapping, or possibly death by Daniel Montoya if they were returned to Costa Rica. They believe he is a member of the Colombian cartels. And again, the IRB says they believe you. In order, um, they, The presumptions before this panel is the claimant's testimony is true. And yet they're saying you have to leave Canada because you don't meet the requirements. What do you want to, what do you want to say, Salvador? Yes. Yeah. 
that is incredible. That is amazing. When we when we saw that the answer from IRB saying that they believe us because we bring all the police and fire department statement with everything that happened to us. Back then. Right. My, I can't believe it. I mean, how do you feel about this country? How do you feel about Canada? Oh, I, I, I am a. This, this country is amazing, amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy. My family is so happy. My boy Daniel is so, so, so integrated to the to his uh, school. We love Canada. We love Canada. That's why we we are so shocked seeing that Canada or the government of Canada is deporting us back to Costa Rica. And you have a job? Yeah. You have a job here? You pay taxes here? Yes. Yes, I have a full-time job. I'm paying my taxes. Uh, I support my family. I don't have help either from provincial or federal help. So I'm paying taxes. I'm contributing to the budget, the Canadian budget. Uh, so I don't know why these guys or this uh, department, or I don't know, they want to depart us back to Costa Rica. Well, I'm going to give them a call, and you and I will talk again. Yep. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Royce. Thank you. And uh, if I can say something in the final, I don't know if um, Mr. Trudeau or maybe the Immigration and Refugee Minister um, once was a refugee too, Mr. Hassan, I think that's, that's the name of this uh, yes. minister now. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he was in my, in my shoes uh, once uh, once before. That's right. And yes, he can help me because uh, I, I'm going to face this guy again in, back there in Costa Rica. They they waiting for us. I think I did. He's waiting for us to kill us or something like that, you know? I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, well, well I'll, I'll get in touch with the IRB as well, but I wanted people to hear you and hear your story and hear the Prime Minister said he's welcoming refugees to Canada. Here you are. You're a contributing member to this country now. You have a job. Yes. You're, you're very well liked by your coworkers. You love the country. Your life is under, was under threat, clearly. They believe you with the Immigration Reform, uh, Refugee Board. They believe you on that, and yet they're throwing you out of Canada. Let's, uh, we'll, 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 we'll get in touch with them. We, we, we won't let you go that easy. Okay. Okay? Okay. All right, Thank Salvador. We'll be back in touch with you. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So here's from uh, the Ontario government. Due to the new travel restrictions, children who were scheduled to receive specialized life-saving surgeries are now being turned away from the United States. These children are being denied critical care simply because of where they were born. As Ontarians, we have an obligation to respond when we know that we have the ability to help. Health Minister Eric Hoskins is working to provide life-saving care to children whose surgeries have been cancelled. Time is critical for these children and our Ministry of Health and Ontario's specialized children's hospitals, which provide best-in-the-world care, feel the responsibility to act quickly. And there's Justin Masati, now 18 years of age. An email that I received from his dad, Mike, who's been in Tijuana with Justin for since October. Premier Wynn, your Facebook post indicates that Health Minister Eric Hoskins is working to provide life-saving care to children whose surgeries have been cancelled due to the U.S. policy. U.N. Minister Hoskins are hypocrites. I'm quoting Mike. Premier Wynn and Eric Hoskins, you've denied OHIP funding for my 18-year-old son, Justin Masati, a Hamilton, Ontario citizen who's receiving life-saving cancer treatment in Tijuana, Mexico, for his stage 4 brain cancer. The treatment is working. U.N. Minister Hoskins have let Justin Masati die, decided to let Justin Masati die, and hope no one notices. Justin Masati was close to dying in October. When he arrived at the clinic in Mexico, Justin was bedridden, but had 
no control of his bowel movements, couldn't walk, wasn't eating or drinking, and lost over 50 pounds. He's now walking on his own. He's eating three meals a day. He's doing physiotherapy. Justin has control of his bowel movement, and he's put on 50 pounds. My family spent over $300,000 in the Mexican Cancer Clinic. Premier Wynne and Eric Hoskins have never spoken to me personally, have ignored all my emails, and I have uh, sent to both of them. My family is not rich. Justin will die if OHIP funding is not received. You, Premier Wynne, respond when people from other countries need help, but you deny OHIP funding to an Ontario citizen, Justin Massati. How is this possible? Hi, Mike. Hello, Roy. It's I'm, I'm just so upset. I'm I'm I'm, I'm exasperated. I, I feel like it, it's just a no-win situation. I'm not going to win this battle, and and my son's going to die. It's I just can't believe it. Justin is doing tremendously better than he was in October. Clearly, yes. You've sent out videos. Clearly. You sent out videos of Justin, and I posted one of them to Twitter, of Justin exercising. Young man who couldn't get out of bed. It was essentially comatose in October. And I don't want to, I mean, I was so angry when I saw your emails earlier today. And we had corresponded by email. What do you want to say? I mean, you, somebody from the Ministry of Health is going to be getting, they're going to hear about this if they're not listening directly. The minister will hear about it. Talk to him, Mike. In fact, this morning, I mean, just talking about Justin's um, uh, physio. This morning, he has he's given two ankle, 10-pound ankle braces. Just this morning, he went up and down a set of 22 stairs with them on, with, uh, you know, perfectly balanced going up and down the stairs with 10-pound bracelet with, on each of his ankles. <laughs> like he's, he's getting, he's improving. How could uh, to the minister, to Premier Wynne, like, how can you let, how can you reject funding? How can you do this? And yet you make it a priority to look after non-Canadians. I'm all for helping non-Canadians when they need the help. But you have to also look after your own people first. Or at least, why can't you do both? It, it's shocking. I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, it's, it's affecting my health down here. I have to look after it. I got you, Mike. Sorry, right. No, I got you. Because when, when you and Justin and your family went to see the physicians here, you were told, as you've told us before, Justin could go to the hospital. He'd be taken to McMaster Hospital in Hamilton. He'd be put in a room. Yes. He'd be given chemotherapy, but it wasn't going to help him. That's correct. Uh, they, you know, the, the taxpayer would be paying for it. For the hospital to stay in the chemo. And yet... It just makes no sense why they wouldn't, you know, pay give out what funding for Justin. They sent they sent they sent a letter. They faxed or emailed you a letter, saying that or send you a hard copy. I'm not sure how they did it, but I saw a copy of it, and they're saying, well, the the clinic in Mexico doesn't meet the requirements for us to provide funding. How about looking at the progress the young man has made? How about just taking the human side of it? Instead of dealing with your bureaucratic rules and, and regulations and subparagraphs, look at the progress that Justin has made and then ask yourself, does this young man deserve assistance? This is a young Canadian kid. This is a young Ontario kid, born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario. Exactly. Like they're telling me it's the, the science doesn't, um, they're rejecting it because of the science. Well, 
the, like you said, the video show. I mean, if that's not science, I don't know what science is. They said the same. That the treatment is working. Mike, they said the same thing to Hector McMillan, that the IRE surgery was 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 experimental and now because of because of the pressure and because of all of the Canadians who've gone to who are going to Germany for the surgery by Dr. Matthias Berth, um, now from from what I understand from from Hector, the Ontario Ministry of Health is saying, well we're going to start doing the IRE surgeries at the University Health Network in Toronto. So yeah. I think, I, and, and that they were going to let him die. It's shocking. Like, no words can say how uh, how, how bad can this get in our province? How bad is our health care when they can allow this to happen? Folks, find out who your MPP is. If you're listening to this program now, I don't care where you are. If you're in Ontario, if you're outside the province of Ontario, and many of you are, get in touch. Why doesn't everybody just send an email to the Premier of Ontario and copy the health minister and, and, and just check out Mike Massadi and Justin Massadi on Facebook and on Twitter? And then just do something, send them a letter, send them a notification, let them know how you feel about it. Mike, I'm going to stay in touch. I've got to run, my friend, because we squeezed this in. I wanted to talk to you. We're on your Much side. appreciated. We're Much on your side, Mike. Give Justin our best. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So there are the beauties. Catherine Swift, uh, workingcanadians.com. CA, former chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Linda Leatherdale, vice president of Cambria, Canada, former money editor for the Toronto Sun, and Michelle Simpson, former liberal MP and seatmate to Justin Trudeau. Uh, I have to start with this, or I'll ask you if you'll clearly, if you'll kindly consent to starting with this. Uh, We played earlier the response to the conversation that Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia, had with Donald Trump. And Malcolm Turnbull very calmly, very very diplomatically pushed aside all questions about Trump being bellowing at him and hanging up on him and very professionally handled it. And so then I asked the question whether Mr. Trudeau would have the chops to confront Donald Trump because, I mean, I, he represents us. And we heard some calls and some very good opinions. And then there's email, like, or is it a text from, uh, I can't tell who it's from. But it's a text. And it's, I wonder if Trump is aware of Trudeau's extensive wealth of business and political background. Trump is dealing with a snowboard instructor, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, um, Michelle, you know, uh, you know the, uh, the prime minister. How's it going to go with uh, between Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau? Because you know they're going to be talking in the next couple of days, and you know the prime minister is going to bring up the issue of refugees because he's heard what Mr. Trudeau had to say after Trump uh, in, put in place the travel ban that's been temporarily set aside by a Seattle judge. Uh, and, and you know that Mr. Mr. Trump wants NAFTA renegotiated and, uh, and, and everything changed on NAFTA. So how's, how's Justin Trudeau going to... How will he fare? You know the man. How's he going to fare against Donald Trump? Oh, I, I don't. If he's thinking it's a uh, Patrick Brazo, uh, you know, uh, event, you know, where he gets in the ring and clearly can, you know, punch his way out, he's way, he's way, he's trying to punch way above his 
weight class if he goes after Trump, because Trump is unpredictable. Uh, our prime minister likes to be loved and is not nearly as abrasive. Personally, I think in any confrontation, uh, we'll get eaten for breakfast. Hmm. Well, Catherine, uh, what, do, what would you advise Mr. Trudeau? Oh, boy. Well, first of all, well, I, the, the whole Trump thing is very unpredictable so far, in my view, anyway. So it, it, I think it would be tough to give advice. Obviously, uh, our interests are so intertwined with the U.S. to their advantage as well. Uh, and, you know, I guess the advice I would give, uh, kind of simplistic as it is, would just be reinforce the advantage to the U.S. of the uh, NAFTA you know our free trade agreement. The the real let's face it, the the real um, uh, problem, and, and again, not really a problem, but the the real weakness in NAFTA is is Mexico because of course they have a hugely different economic structure than than the U.S. and Canada do. So uh, so I don't think I I tend to think Trump's probably going to, despite his bluster and whatnot, I suspect he's going to get advice to say, look, Canada's not the issue here. You know, maybe look at the Mexican situation. But the thing that bugs me from, you know, from the economist standpoint, I guess, is free trade ultimately, if done properly, benefits everyone. It really does. And yes, there's always some there's always some transitions involved. And there's no doubt the kind of heavy industry in both the U.S. and Canada, because Canada's lost a lot of jobs in that sort of classic you know, whether it's the auto sector or whatever, um, and other sort of heavy industrial. Um, that, that situation also is a benefit to a lot of consumers who end up getting lower prices for stuff they're buying. So, you know, it's, it's very simplistic for Trump to say, oh, we're going to get those jobs back. First of all, he's not. That's just, you know, people are going to start building again uh, instead of in, let's say, Thailand or, you know, China or whatever. No, that's just not the case. So, it's it's uh, it's it's a tough situation because I think Trump has made a ton of promises. He's going to have a very difficult time keeping, but it's great rhetoric. Well, I have a I'm going to respectfully, cautiously, maybe marginally disagree with what you said, and <laughs> I'm going to do that only because the guy's so unpredictable and he has so many billionaires working on his side. There's huge egos at play here, and they will not be pushed aside. Now, Linda. Got an, got an email from Kathy. How can Trudeau represent our values when he doesn't think we have any? <laughs> there you go. And we don't have any values. How do you think it'll um, turn out? You, you, you know the business and the money world. So you have the Prime Minister of Canada with a room full of advisors, and they're on the phone with the President of the United States who has a room full of advisors and a White House full of ego. What happens? Well, you know what? You're right about the ego on the Trump side. Um you know, I'm, I'm hearing now that, of course, all these judges are going to fight this ban from the Muslim countries, and maybe he has to step back. But I've got to tell you, he's got some advisors around him that they're not going to stand down. They're going to stand firm, and they're going to continue. And I don't know whether Trudeau has the experience to really deal with this, quite honestly. I'm hoping what Catherine said, I mean, come on. We have been their largest trading partner for years. Won't matter. We and we and we count for something. I work for an American firm. Come on. I got it. I got it. I got it. But it, but but if the conversation is going on, 
We have to take a break in a second. But Catherine uh, and, and Linda and Michelle, if the conversation is going on and it becomes lively, as it apparently did between Trump and and and, uh, and Malcolm Turnbull, even though they're trying to walk it back now and say that oh, it was everything was fine, nobody hung up. But come on, uh, if if the if it gets lively and it and it and it gets emotional or the egos get prodded. God knows how it's going to turn out, and and Mr. Trudeau is going to have to square his shoulders, and not do that patty patty thing as he did with uh, Senator Brazo, who was just fat and out of shape. Uh, he's going to have yeah. to be able to really use an effective left jab, a good left hook, and a, and a right and a right cross, and make it work. Well, I hope I hope Trudeau's getting good advice because I I mean let's face it, Trudeau himself he, he has no experience in these things. No, he, you know he, neither do his uh, advisors. Neither do his advisors. Well, uh, well, I'm just hoping there's some sensible people, maybe in the senior bureaucracy or something, that are giving him good advice because I have zero confidence in Trudeau personally to even understand these issues, let alone defend Canada. Okay, dokey. Okie dokie. So you're staying in California then, are you, Michelle? And I'm going to visit her. Yeah. No, no. It's no, no. She's coming home. Well, California's got Governor Moonbeam, so that. Oh, that God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Governor Moonbeam. How could we forget? Not unlike Ontario area, where we are all located. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right, back with the beauties, Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, who was the seatmate to the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, and Catherine Swift, the always reticent to speak her mind, former chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, workingcanadians.ca. Check, check out workingcanadians.ca. Get engaged, get involved. Well, you don't have to get engaged, particularly if you're already married. Um, so, uh, by the way, Roy, I'm getting tweets as to where to board my dog. You're what? Aww. I'm getting tweets as to where to board my dog, which is kind of oh, cool. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. So nice. Cool. Yeah, and they look good, too, actually. <laughs> anyway, forward them to me, please. I digress. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we got this email from Catherine, as we always exchanged emails. And uh, I, I like the idea of taking a look at some of the promises that were made by. Mr. Trudeau, and uh, you, you point out that Andrew Coyne had a piece in yesterday's post, which you tweeted out, Catherine. Yeah, so about, it was Thursdays, I think. Right? Was it yeah, Thursdays? It, was, it okay. was very funny. How Trudeau's f- saying that he didn't break his promises, that but we let him down? We let him down, oh. yeah. It was a very <laughs> funny piece. If, you, if ever, anybody hasn't read it, just Google it. It was in Thursday's uh, National Post, and... Um, he was basically saying that on electoral reform, of course, was the topic, but he was saying, you know, that kind of with a heavy heart, Trudeau had to abandon this promise because we Canadians just didn't rise to the occasion that he thought we would kind of thing. And so anyway, it was very tongue in cheek and, and, and quite funny. But of course, the reality is there are so many significant promises because some promises are, are, to my mind, anyway, are, are small potatoes, and you don't, you don't I guess I shouldn't say that, because I think China called Trudeau a small potato or something, but anyway, um, uh, they're, they're, when they abandon them, you go, good, that was a good one to abandon, but things like electoral reform, that was a big plank in their platform, things like having an open competition for the fighter jets. Though that was a big deal, right? Well, they've totally abandoned that. And then there was something just in the last couple of days that showed that that purchase of those Hornets, instead of having an open competition and whatever, 
is going to be hugely expensive and not going to uh, last in our in our air force. They're buying eight, Catherine. Catherine, they're, buy, they're buying eighteen planes. Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's and and, and uh, I've seen senior military people, which I'm surprised they still have their jobs, saying this is a dumb move. <laughs> and I, I'll tend to believe the military people before I'll believe like a Trudeau who has zero credibility in, in this kind of area. But um, and there's also, I mean, there was a shooting in Toronto in a few days ago at one of these pot dispensaries. I mean, you know, yeah, they were going to legalize marijuana. So all these pot places sprung up that are now technically illegal, and there's all this crime surrounding them. So these aren't just kind of trivial things that have been abandoned by our, our, you know, federal government. They're things that are... I think pretty serious. So, see, see, I told you, yeah. she, I told you and she was a shy. Lot of them. I told you she was shy and reticent. I told you. <laughs> Linda, uh, Michelle, if you, Michelle, if you were still in government now, if you were still sitting representing Scarborough Southwest, Southwest, I got it. If you were still re- representing Scarborough Southwest as a Liberal member of Parliament, and you'd run in the election in 2015, making the promises the Prime Minister made and the Liberal Party committed to, and now you were faced with what in fact has happened. What would you say behind closed doors? What I'm trying to get at is, first of all, I'd like to know what you would say, and do you think anybody in the current caucus is saying, hang on a minute, or does nobody have the courage to do that? Well, I, I think they're saying it amongst themselves in the current, some in the current caucus. But anyone that didn't see this coming, I saw it the minute, uh, you know, we got into deep weeds with Monsef heading this up. I think she got tossed under the bus that, you know, once we won the majority, the liberals, they really, really had no intention because it will have an impact and they just weren't sure how much. I would be arguing for sure that we owed it to the uh, electorate to follow through because, as Catherine says, a lot of these are big issues. They are. We, we have a we have a we have about a minute and a half left. Let me go to let me ask Linda a question. Linda, if you were still uh, writing uh, the money section for the Sun, instead of you know being the vice president of Cambridge, driving a new Bentley every month, would well, you? What would what would you what would you be writing? What would you what would you pick to write about over the about the first year plus of the Trudeau management of Canada? It's absolutely the same thing over and over again. These promises are made. I don't see why we cannot have a referenda in Canada, Roy, for true democracy. And this whole shift on one of his major promises just says the same thing again. You get a majority government, goddamn the people. You don't care about the people and what the people really have to say. Twas ever thus. Twas ever thus. And I want to just go back. We are the taxpayers. We fund this country. There is corruption everywhere. And come on, I thought we were going to get better. All right, beauties. That's our time. I know. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) We'll talk to you next. Okay, we'll take the gloves off now. Okay. (laughs) We'll talk talk next Saturday. Absolutely. As my friend Don Cherry says, toodaloo. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.